Thank you very much, indeed. Um, so a lot of you will have uh, seen the uh, orgiastic celebrations of uh, Dickens' birthday. Um, my favourite so far has been the uh, cover of Waitrose Weekend magazine, which has a, a picture of uh, Sue Perkins uh, up on the masthead, and it says, Dickens' wife Catherine got her revenge in the end. And then the headline, as you'll see, is Dickens, what a feast. So it gives the impression that her revenge took the form of eating uh, her husband. Um, but that's not, in fact, completely inappropriate because, as various scholars have argued over the years, uh, Dickens was... The, uh, a lot of his work was characterised by what's been called the night side, the night side of Dickens. Uh, and in a book of that name, The Night Side of Dickens, one critic, Harry Stone, uh, argued that his work was absolutely full of references to cannibalism. Uh, now, one example of cannibalism in his work is the character of Quilp in The Old Curiosity Shop, which is the novel that I'm going to be looking at in a bit of detail today. So Quilp, who's this violent, dwarven villain, uh, takes a cannibalistic pleasure in teasing and in torturing his wife, Mrs. Quilp. Uh, there is Quilp eavesdropping on uh, Mrs. Quilp's conversation with her friends. They're gossiping and tea drinking and aren't aware that he's in. He comes in and he shoes them all out and then he squares up to Mrs. Quilp. Oh, you nice creature, were the words with which he broke silence, smacking his lips as if this was no figure of speech and she were actually a sweetmeat. Oh, you precious darling, oh, you delicious charmer. Mrs. Quilp sobbed, and knowing the nature of her pleasant lord, appeared quite as much alarmed by these compliments as she would have been by the most extreme demonstrations of violence. So it's on this night side of Dickens, uh, in particular in the old curiosity shop, that I'm going to concentrate in this uh, lunchtime lecture. Um, but I'm not going to do so, in fact, mainly in relation to Quilp. Uh, the old curiosity shop is comparatively neglected amongst Dickens's novels, uh, in scholarly terms at least, partly because of its notorious sentimentality. Uh, Oscar Wilde, there's an example uh, from one of the illustrations, Oscar Wilde famously uh, said, with reference to little, the death of little Nell, who's the child, the saintly child protagonist of the old curiosity shop, he famously said, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to laugh at her death. Uh, and he typified a trend later on in the 19th century which rejected the novel precisely because of its sentimentalism, which had appealed to many of Dickens's immediate contemporaries. Um, but those critics that do take the novel seriously, uh, contemporary to today's critics, uh, tend to focus on, on Quilp. Uh, so that's one reason that I'm not going to do so, but he, despite the fact that he's a, he's a very tempting, he's a delicious prospect, in fact. He's one of Dickens's great grotesques. Instead, what I want to do is talk a bit about the novel's narrator, mysterious narrator, Master Humphrey, who most readers of the novel tend to overlook. In spite of his innocence and his geniality, uh, Mr. Humphrey, Master Humphrey is a character who himself, I think, although this is not usually seen, has a whiff, more than a whiff, perhaps, of the grotesque about him. Uh, and in some respects, he is indeed positively quilt-like. 
Uh, and I want to argue, in fact, among other things, that he's quilts double in the novel. So The Old Curiosity Shop was published in 1840 and 1841 uh, in the form of a weekly serial in Dickens's miscellany, which he started in 1840, Master Humphrey's Clock. And the conceit of that periodical is that each week, Master Humphrey and his rather fuddy-duddy friends, uh, which include the deaf gentleman seen here on the right with Master Humphrey on the left, uh, they gather together uh, to relate anecdotes, tell tall stories and tales to one another, uh, choosing them from a, a pile of papers that Master Humphrey has accumulated and keeps in his clock. So Dickens's readers of this miscellany, if you like, are themselves eavesdroppers. Uh, eavesdropping is one of the great themes, as I perhaps already implied, of the novel. His readers uh, are overhearing these tales as they unfold in the rather self-consciously cosy setting of Master Humphrey's house. Now, originally, the story from which the old curiosity shop was conceived was nothing more uh, than one of those sketches that comes out of the, the clock, supposedly, in a single issue of the periodical. And it centred on the narrator, uh, Master Humphrey's encounter with little Nell, a 13-year-old girl, in a London street at night. And this is the passage which I'm most interested in and which I'm going to come back to. Largely as a result of the miscellany's growing unpopularity, though, Dickens extended and decided to completely reshape the story. So he developed Nell's narrative and the narrative of some other characters, including Dick Swiveller, uh, and, in fact, completely discarded Master Humphrey himself. So at the end of chapter three of the novel, which appeared in the eighth issue of Master Humphrey's Clock, Dickens very abruptly has his narrator, Master Humphrey, announce that he's resigning from his role as a narrator. And I'll quote, And now that I've carried this history so far in my own character and introduced these personages to the reader, I shall, for the convenience of the narrative, detach myself from its further course and leave those who have prominent and necessary parts in it to speak and act for themselves. Uh, now, as resignation speeches go, I think this is a pretty unconvincing one, and it's often a pretty unconvincing genre. Uh, he's standing aside for, uh, clearly, for younger, more energetic colleagues, but he can't really pretend that he wants to spend more time with his family because he hasn't got a family. He's a loner, he's an eccentric, he's an oddball, Dickens has sacked the old man, uh, in fact, I think, because he can't really take the pace of the weekly composition and publication of the narrative. He's simply too doddery and too peculiar. And Dickens, if he's going to avoid suddenly sending his career as a novelist into a nosedive, which was a real possibility at this time, because initially sales of Master Humphrey's clocks were extremely poor. They only picked up when the old curiosity shop began to subsume it. He has to get rid of him, and he has to replace him. So Dickens needs another kind of narrator. Dickens really needs Dickens. And he suddenly realized that this was an opportunity to reinforce his self-branding. Uh, he appears, therefore, effectively, 
uh, as the narrator himself, as an omniscient narrator, elbowing Master Humphrey aside. And Master Humphrey therefore has to make that rather humiliating uh, wooden resignation speech. So the clock, ironically, it turns out, is a retirement clock. And Dickens really rubs Master Humphrey's face in it, in fact, later on in the novel. Uh, he describes the narrator and the reader, the new narrator, the Dickensian narrator, if you like, the omniscient narrator and the reader, he describes them as intrepid aeronauts springing into the air and traversing great uh, distances spatially and temporally. Uh, nothing could have been more different to Master Humphrey's rather slow perambulations as a narrator. So soon, uh, with its Dickensian narrator, without Master Humphrey, with, in other words, a narrator who is a third-person narrator, as I say, and who speaks fluent Dickensese, the old curiosity shop absorbs Master Humphrey's clock completely, as does the subsequent novel, Barnaby Rudge, incidentally, and it thereby saves it from financial collapse, which could have done serious damage to Dickens' career at this time. And consequently, Master Humphrey gets pretty much completely forgotten, except that at the very end of the novel, in the kind of bridge between this novel, The Old Curiosity Shop, and the next novel, Barnaby Rudge, Dickens very mysteriously and strangely, incongruously and unconvincingly, announces that, in fact, all along, Master Humphrey has, has been one of the characters in The Old Curiosity Shop, a character called The Single Gentleman. It doesn't really make any sense. It's another of these strange narrative hiatuses. The intensive demands of weekly serial publication, of being Dickens, as Dickens was, was becoming, had an absolutely corrosive effect on Dickens psychologically. Uh, and in the late autumn and the early spring, or the winter of 1840, as a result of this pressure, this stress, Dickens took to the streets at night because he was suffering from acute insomnia and he had to try to walk it, walk it out. So the composition of the novel uh, was, I'd argue, shaped by this activity, this nocturnal activity, this compulsive walking around the streets of London at night. Later on, in 1861, when he has another acute bout of insomnia, uh, he writes about this in an absolutely wonderful article called Night Walks. Uh, and here's a map, in fact. Uh, it's not terribly distinct, I'm afraid, but a map which shows the places where he goes. And I urge people who like Dickens' novels to read his wonderful article, Night Walks 2. Um, this is a, uh, it might seem like a non sequitur. Uh, it's really an excuse to advertise a film based on the article Night Walks, which was commissioned very recently by the Museum of London for its Dickens exhibition, and which uh, the wonderful filmmaker William Rabin, who's pictured here shooting the film, uh, was responsible for. Uh, so those of you who haven't seen the Dickens in London exhibition, which is a terrific exhibition, I urge you to see it and to sit and watch this 18-minute film. Uh, I'll also quickly plug the fact that he and I are going to be screening it and doing a talk uh, in uh, mid-June at UCL, in fact. So this compulsive activity of night walking uh, didn't really solve 
Dickens's problems. In some ways, I think it, it reinforced them. So the antidote that he was looking for became itself a kind of poison. All night I have been pursued by the child, he recorded uh, in a letter on one occasion, alluding, of course, to little Nell herself. And this morning he says, I'm unrefreshed and miserable. The old curiosity shop's all about pursuing the child. But from this reverse perspective, the innocent little Nell acquires, I think, a slightly demonic character pursuing Dickens. She's more like the implacable and dreaded attendant that haunts the protagonist of Sheridan Lefanu's The Familiar, for example, from a generation later, to cite another instance of a, of a narrative with a plot that's centered on pursuit and pursuit at night in particular. So to come back more specifically to the old curiosity shop and to remind you of the plot, if you've read it and tell you if you haven't, Nell's grandfather has been gambling uh, in order to support her. Uh, and he's become deeply indebted to this figure, Quilp, this violent dwarven usurer who we've uh, already had occasion to meet. And it's in order to escape Quilp that Nell and her grandfather, who's known as the old man, steal out of London extremely early one morning in sunlight that we're told transfigures places that had shown ugly and distrustful all night long. Again, I think we can hear echoes of Dickens's own night walking there, and that chases away the shadows of the night. And so they begin a, a picaresque and episodic journey through England to some rural idyll in the countryside. And they have no idea where they end up, and they're trying to forget and to escape their past. All along, of course, they're pursued by Quilp and various other people. Here they are, though, leaving in the morning. The two pilgrims, often pressing each other's hands or exchanging a smile or cheerful look, pursued their way in silence. Bright and happy as it was, there was something solemn in the long deserted streets from which, like bodies without souls, all habitual character and expression had departed, leaving but one dead uniform repose that made them all alike. Now, the narrative of this flight from a dead city, which famously ends, of course, as I've said, in Nell's death, whether you find it hilarious or pathetic, is structured as a pilgrimage, uh, and later in this chapter, in fact, Nell refers quite explicitly to Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. So walking in this novel, uh, which as you'll have guessed is one of my interests in it, has a symbolic, has a spiritual value uh, as well as a, uh, as, 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 a, as a value in terms of plot. So let's turn to the figure of Master Humphrey himself, one of the people who, in rather a bleak way perhaps, pursues the child. Um, as I've suggested, he's a character whose oddness has tended to be overlooked, perhaps because superficially he's less peculiar, less grotesque than so many of Dickens's well-known characters. Scholars of Victorian fiction, as I've suggested, tend to take him at face value. They tend to regard him as a benign, if slightly eccentric, geriatric. Um, but I think he's a much darker character than that, and not least because, like Dickens at the time he was writing this, he too is a night walker. In a double sense, I'd argue that Master Humphrey is Dickens's, or one of Dickens's, certainly this novel's most curious characters. And as I've 
said, I think he has a secret affinity with the novel's villain, with Quilp. So I want to just unravel his identity a bit here uh, in order to offer a, a kind of alternative introduction to the novel. Uh, and in so doing, I suppose, providing a, uh, an introduction to an alternative novel uh, to the unconscious, if you like, of the old curiosity shop. And we might call this alternative novel The Mystery of Master Humphrey, as this talk's called, or uh, we might call it, to take a phrase from James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, the old cupiosity shape. It's a characteristic Joycean pun, uh, which I think very brilliantly, very deftly excavates Dickens's novel's hidden channels of desire and violence. At the start of the old curiosity shop, Master Humphrey reflects on that constant pacing to and fro, that never-ending restlessness, that incessant tread of feet wearing the rough stones, smooth and glossy, that typifies life in the metropolis. And he effectively characterizes the novel as a kind of secular purgatory. Think of a sick man in such a place as St. Martin's Court, which is in Covent Garden, of course, listening to the footsteps and in the midst of pain and weariness obliged, despite himself, to detect the child's step from the man's, the slipshod beggar from the booted exquisite, the lounging from the busy, the dull heel of the sauntering outcast from the quick tread of an expectant pleasure seeker. Think of the hum and noise always being present to his sense and of the stream of life that will not stop pouring on, on, on through all his restless dreams, as if he were condemned to lie dead but conscious in a noisy churchyard and had no hope of rest for centuries to come. So for this sick man who's, as it were, physiognomizing, trying to taxonomize and characterize people's footsteps, identifying their relationships to the city, whether it's lounging or a busy one, it becomes a kind of urban mania, this mental activity, the restlessness of London, which gets embodied in that constant repetitive movement of feet on pavement, shapes his restless dreams uh, and troubling thereby the distinction between the sane and the insane. Uh, indeed, I think it's, plaus it's plausible that the nameless man in St. Martin's Court is sick precisely because of this obsession with the sound of his footsteps. Uh, it's not just a kind of symptom it may, the city may in some way, and his obsession with the city may in some sense be the sickness itself. Perhaps this sickness, this endless compulsive restlessness, in other words, is part of the ur urban condition that Dickens is interested in and that he uh, represents pushed here to a pathological extreme for him. As for some of Samuel Beckett's character, characters, uh, this restlessness has been completely internalized. And in fact, in this passage, he portrays the man as a, a figure, really, of the urban undead. In, the, in an account of uh, a short story, a very famous short story called The Man of the Crowd by Edgar Allan Poe, uh, the Baudelaire, in an essay also famous called The Painter of Modern Life from 1861, tells us that uh, the narrator of Poe's story who stalks an old man, not completely unlike Nell's grandfather, in fact, uh, through the streets of London, that for him, curiosity 
has become a compelling and irresistible passion. Uh, and he says that that, Baudelaire says that that, that uh, curiosity is an almost physiological effect of the narrator of Poe's story's convalescent state, his state of convalescence. Convalescence, uh, Baudelaire says, is like a return to childhood. The convalescent, like the child, enjoys to the highest degree the faculty of taking a lively interest in things, even the most trivial in appearance. The curiosity that drives the narrative of the old curiosity shop, it could be said, I think, the interest that Master Humphrey takes in little Nell, when he meets her in the streets of London at night, at the very beginning, is itself a condition of that convalescent state. Uh, if Humphrey distances himself from the sick man in Master Humphrey's clock that I've referred to, about whom he fantasizes, uh, then he does so because of his uncomfortable proximity to him. Because Master Humphrey is himself, we're told, a cripple. He suffered all his life from some unnamed infirmity. It's presumably partly for that reason uh, that for many years, we're told, he's led a solitary, a lonely life. He lives in a house in a vener venerable suburb. It is a silent, shady place with a paved courtyard so full of echoes that sometimes, he says, I'm tempted to believe that faint responses to the noises of old times linger there yet and that these ghosts of sound haunt my footsteps as I pace it up and down. So superficially, Master Humphrey seems quite sane, I think, albeit a bit quaint, but the haunted footsteps in this very urbane sentence, the footsteps that haunt him, are indelible symptoms of the same kind of urban mania from which the man in St. Martin's Court is suffering. So there's a kinship between those two as well, I think. But for Master Humphrey, as for this figure of the convalescent in Baudelaire's essay on Poe, Curiosity, to quote Baudelaire, has become a compelling, irresistible passion. And it pushes him into the city streets. In fact, the title of the novel, I think, The Old Curiosity Shop, refers not just to the shop of that name, Nell's grandfather's shop, but to the city itself, which is a kind of lumber room of all these strange objects and people, people very much alongside the objects. And he describes uh, in Master Humphrey's clock some of his nocturnal activities. In the course of my wanderings by night and day in this curiosity shop that is the city, at all hours and seasons, in city streets and quiet country parts, I came to be familiar, he says, with certain faces. And to take it to heart as quite a heavy disappointment if they fail to present themselves each at its accustomed spot. So faces implicitly for Master Humphrey are also curiosity, just like the inanimate objects that people his chamber, as we're told, just as they too have, uh, like the clock, in fact, have anthropomorphic qualities. But if he likes to amble around the lumber room that's the city, he isn't, I don't think, because of his infirmity, particularly comfortable in it. He's not like the Baudelarian hero of the city who strolls around very comfortably in it. He's in the un unenviable position of being a very socially marginal figure, who's nonetheless, because of his infirmity, the object of a certain public fascination. We're told that he's a misshapen, deformed old man. Uh, and we're led to understand that when he first moved to the suburb in which he lives, his neighbours regarded him variously as, that hasn't come out very well, I'm afraid, a spy, an infidel, a conjurer, a kidnapper of children, 
a refugee, a priest, a monster. So according to his neighbors, who identify him with, with everything that's not modern, with the feudal, with the foreign, with the folkloric, he's completely outside the pale of modernity, Master Humphrey. The identity initially ascribed to Humphrey then by these rather suspicious neighbors, spy, infidel, conjurer, kidnapper of children, refugee, priest, monsters, might be the consequence of uh, his peculiar habit, in particular his nocturnal walking. Uh, so he's not unlike, in some ways, Peter Lorre's uh, character in uh, Fritz Lang's M. In other words, he's the victim of popular prejudices about men of a slightly odd appearance who walk around the city at night because they don't feel at home in it during the day. He's a sauntering outcast, to use one of uh, Dickens's phrases, or to take yet another phrase from a slightly later article, his, his walking is objectless, loitering, purely vagabond. Let's focus in on the old curiosity shop briefly uh, as we draw to a close. Nighttime, he announces at the beginning of the old curiosity shop, is generally my time for walking. And he adds that although he does walk in the countryside, he seldom goes out uh, until after dark. I have fallen, he says, insensibly into this habit, both because it favors my infirmity and because it affords me greater opportunity of speculating on the characters and occupations of those who fill the streets. The glare and hurry of broad noon are not adapted to idle pursuits like mine. A glimpse of passing faces caught by the light of a street lamp or a shop window is often better for my purpose than their full revelation in the daylight. And if I must add the truth, night is kinder in this respect than day which too often destroys an air-built castle at the moment of its completion without the least ceremony or remorse. So he relishes the fact that night is the realm of private fantasy, in effect, refusing what he calls the hurry of broad noon, the brisk rhythms of business. He prefers idle pursuits like rambling and speculating about those who fill the streets, as he says, even when they're not particularly filled, as at night. So the city at night allows him to wander, and it allows him to wonder. He's at most at home in the time, the middle of the night, the time of guilt and darkness, as Dickens put it in another context. Now, the narrative proper, which I'm finally getting to, begins with the following anecdote. This is the primal scene of the novel, if you like. One night I had roamed into the city and was walking slowly on in my usual way, musing upon a great many things, when I was arrested by an inquiry, the purport of which did not reach me, but which seemed to be addressed to myself and was preferred in a soft, sweet voice that struck me very pleasantly. I turned hastily round and found at my elbow a pretty little girl who begged to be directed to a certain street at a considerable distance and indeed in quite another quarter of the town. Now, after this paragraph, Dickens delays just a fraction before reassuring us of the innocence of Nell's inquiry, of her innate goodness, which we come to know only too well. Uh, and we have to suppress an impulse, I think, as readers, and certainly would have done in the 1840s, to mistrust her soft, sweet voice. After all, uh, one of the most visible forms of prostitution in this period, uh, as various critics have reminded us, was that of the isolated activity of the streetwalker at night. I've lost my road, Nell 
uh, announces in the ensuing dialogue with Master Humphreys in a sentence that's very heavy with moral associations uh, and that's designed, I think, once again, just very gently to hint that she might be a fallen or a falling woman or young girls. Because if young girls walking alone in the city streets weren't prostitutes at this time, then in the population, popular imagination at least, they were potential prostitutes, susceptible to predatory pimps. So Henry Mayhew's London Labour and the London Poor from 1851 uh, includes a, a quotation which I'll briefly give you from the founding of the London Society for the Protection of Young Females and the Prevention of Juvenile Prostitution, which says, when an innocent child appears in the streets without a protector, she's insidiously watched by one of these merciless wretches and decoyed under some plausible pretext to an abode of infamy and degradation. No sooner is the unsuspecting helpless one within their grasp than by a preconcerted measure she becomes the victim of their inhuman design. Uh, so the lecture discusses the ways in which young girls might be trapped or trepanned uh, by pimps. Dickens himself writes about this, uh, or had written about this in 1835 in Bell's Life in London. Step by step, he says, how many wretched females within the sphere of every man's observation have become involved in a career of vice frightful to contemplate. Hopeless at its commitments, loathsome and repulsive in its course, friendless, forlorn and unpitied at its miserable uh, conclusion. So here in 1835, he's uh, meditating on a scene uh, of two young girls being picked up, which he happens to have witnessed. So he's acutely conscious, Dickens, I think, of this association of young girls in the city at night with victimization and with uh, criminalization. And that shapes or would have shaped Dickens's contemporary readers' reading of the opening of the novel. Now, Dickens doesn't directly identify Nell and Master Humphrey with these villainous social uh, outcasts, uh, but uh, I do think it offers us a kind of glimpse of an alternative uh, novel. And that glimpse is reinforced when uh, he goes on to explain that, Master Humphrey goes on to explain, that he so liked this young girl that he wasn't prepared to lead her home. She's got lost by a direct route because he enjoys her company so much. So he takes her on a very circuitous route. Uh, in etymological terms, that constitutes a seduction, a leading away. There's something very faintly suspicious and arguably even sadistic about the fact that, frightened though she is, this girl gets led home by a far, far longer route. Now, I'm not suggesting that Master Humphrey is a paedophile, that he's the kidnapper of children that his neighbours thought he was. Uh, he's a collector of human curiosities. But I do think that this narrator makes us feel uncomfortably complicit with some of the most morally ambiguous passages of life in the metropolitan city in the mid-19th century. Um, and it's that, I think, that associates him with the villainous character of Quilp. Just briefly to conclude, uh, we have to wait, I think, till a bit later on in the century before these unconscious associations, the association in effect of Master Humphrey and Quilp, begin to emerge more clearly. Uh, for example, in Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, 
where Mr. Hyde is undoubtedly a quilt character and Mr. Master Humphrey might be seen as a kind of Dr. Jekyll. All at once, I saw two figures, he says. Uh, Utterson, the narrator, says. One, a little man who was stumping along eastward at a good walk, that's Hyde, and the other, a girl of maybe eight or ten who was running as hard as she was able to down a cross street. Well, sir, the two ran into one another, naturally enough, at the corner, and then came the horrible part of the thing, for the man trampled calmly over the child's body and left her screaming on the ground. Here, if you like, Master Humphrey gets reconfigured by Stevenson as Quilp. And those unconscious energies that Dickens tries to repress, part of his repression, arguably, is uh, this act of repression is sacking Master Humphrey as a narrator, begin to emerge more clearly. That's it. <clears throat> Very interesting. Thank you very much, Maurice. Uh, uh, Matthew, now I open it up to, um, uh, to you for any questions from the floor. If you hang on, the, uh, a microphone will come. Sorry, I didn't announce that. There you go. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. The, the point you were making about the ambiguity of Master Humphrey, the, uh, when he comes up with that peculiar story, sorry, that peculiar story that I was in there as the single gentleman who was a vigorous energy, and he's a cripple, but that I wasn't the person at the beginning of the story that I said I was, as if he's trying to clean himself out. Yeah. Um, but could I ask you to say, you also talked about the strain Dickens was going through, mm. and uh, just rereading Master Humphrey, it, it does seem very peculiar that he's being torn in all sorts of directions, didn't he? He creates four people to tell stories, then he brings the old Pickwick back to be another storyteller. At the same time, he's trying to run away from this group. Mm -hmm. And then he not only has Master Humphrey say, I was in that story, he tells you that Jack Redburn, I think it was, was in um, Barnaby Rudge. Yeah. Uh, he seems to be being tearing himself to bits, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, well, that's, uh, you've put it much better than I could. I think you're right. I think the, the fact that he can't fix on a on a singular narrative persona, the fact that he hasn't found Dickens yet, if you like, the fact that he doesn't, hasn't become Dickens, uh, that he hasn't branded himself properly and doesn't quite know what he's doing, is reflected in the fact that there's this, it's not just a miscellany, a miscellany in terms of a collection of different kinds of sketches and anecdotes and tales, it's a miscellany in terms of a, you know, this terrible heterogeneous ragbag of, of possible storytellers that, that you've, uh, very uh, eloquently set out. Great. Um, was it a criminal offence for someone to pimp a young girl then? And what was the punishment? And also, was prostitution an offence? And what was the punishment? Uh, very good question. I can't give you an extremely detailed or authoritative uh, answer to that. But yes, both, both were and had been for uh, a long time. I know, oddly, I know more about the, um, an earlier period in legal terms, but certainly from the, from the 17th century onwards, um, not only prostitution and pimping, not only were they uh, criminal acts, 
prosecutable, but so indeed was night walking itself. So just to be in the city at night in the 17th and 18th centuries, it had slightly changed by the 19th century, but I think still carried some of these associations. Just to be in the city at night without a purpose, to be walking in a vagabond way in Dickens's terms was uh, made you liable to prosecution and people were you know, constantly picked up uh, simply for being hanging about at night with nothing to do. So, so that was a differentiation between the rich and the poor, because I suppose if you were well-dressed, you could always say you were en route to your mother's house or to a club or something, but, and even if you'd fallen down, you'd say, oh, I tripped. Yeah. Whereas a poor person, they couldn't have that uh, offence. Yeah. And could, can you just mention, you said that there was, um, you knew the offences before that time. Could you just mention what they were? I mean, the punishments. Uh, well, uh, you were, uh, you, you could be imprisoned, I'm not quite sure for how long, but uh, by magistrates in places like uh, Bridewell um, for, for simply hanging about on the streets, for showing, for being idle. And you're absolutely right about the class distinctions. Uh, idleness at night or in the day, but I suppose it, was, it carried particularly uh, noxious Criminal, potentially criminal associations at night. Idleness was very much a, a problem associated with the working classes. Um, it was fine to be an idle member of the upper, upper classes. The middle classes tended not to be idle at all. They tended to go to bed uh, at, uh, you know, at, at, at night time when, when it got dark and not to hang out about, about on the streets at all. But aristocrats, yes, if they weren't in carriages, uh, they still weren't liable unless they looked particularly raffish. Uh, if they were pedestrians in the street at night, and even then they could pull rank and escape prosecution. Sorry. <clears throat> Returning to your earlier point about the sort of multiple narrators, it's always seemed to me, reading Dickens' novels, that he wasn't very good at starting them. Um, it seemed to, seems to have taken him quite a long time to sort of write himself in and decide what his plot was going to be and what his characters were going to be. Even as late as Bleak House, he's sort of quite radically changing characters. Um, so I don't know, do you feel this ambivalence was part of that tendency or something different. Yeah, I think you're right. I disagree that he doesn't begin to get it right. I mean, I think the beginning of Bleak House uh, with that single, with that opening sentence, London, uh, is, is absolutely masterly and is, he's incredibly in control there. But the old curiosity shop, as you imply, is, is, is begun in a rather uh, sort of haphazard and improvisatory way. And it was probably uh, the most hastily begun of all his novels, in fact. Uh, that's a result of these new pressures, these commercial pressures uh, that are the consequence of his decision to, sh to shift over to a weekly publication schedule, which was so, so punishing for him. So he did, to an extent, have to make it up on the, on the spot. Uh, Forster, his, his friend and first biographer, uh, was particularly kind of hard on, his, on the beginning of The Old Curiosity Shop and thought it was particularly rushed. Uh, and Dickens 
uh, responded rather you know, testily to that and claimed that actually he'd got it all worked out. Um, it's not completely convincing, I don't think, so I think you're right. 